Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, and anyone who listens to this podcast knows what I think of Donald Trump and the effect that he's had on our politics, our culture, our democracy, and planet Earth, there is one corner of our world for which he has been an unalloyed boon, the American book business. Over the past five years or so, countless Trump tomes have tumbled off the printing presses and been bound, shipped, stocked, and sold in ginormous quantities to a reading public that can't seem to get enough of the inside dope, the skeevy skinny, the endlessly alarming anecdotes, the comical and canonical quotes, the operatic scenes, the surreal set pieces, all illustrating the shenanigans and transgressions and treacheries behind the scenes and in front of the cameras during Trump's four-year occupation of the White House. Each aspect, an element of the tale more outlandish, outrageous, appalling, eye-popping, incredulity-inspiring, anxiety-provoking, terror-inducing, and stomach-churning than the last. Some of America's most accomplished political reporters and writers have been responsible for this parade of zeitgeist-grabbing and invariably best-selling volumes. Bob Woodward and Bob Costa, Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig, Michael Bender, Jonathan Carl, Mark Leibovich, Jonathan Lemire, James Stewart. The list goes on and on and on. Now, we have a sterling new entrant in the annals of Trumpography, a book entitled The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, a magisterial 752-page magnum opus, which, if dropped on your head from not that many feet above, would almost certainly crack your skull wide open, but which is also a brisk, at times dryly and even witheringly funny, page-turner, and one with ambitions and scope greater than any other Trump book to date. A book that aims to provide the first authoritative, comprehensive, start-to-finish, top-to-bottom account of Agent Orange's tumultuous tenure at Casablanca. Our guests today are the authors of The Divider, two extraordinarily estimable reporters and political analysts, each of whom, working separately, has long occupied a place at the commanding heights of their shared profession, and both of whom, working in tandem, have lately taken up residence in the crucial, rarefied space where the strands of journalism and history are woven artfully and insightfully into a single glorious garment. As it happens, the two folks in question also happen to be a married couple who work together tirelessly without exhibiting any outward signs of wanting to wring each other's necks. And even more astonishing, they're two of the nicest, kindest, and most pleasant people you could ever hope to meet. Going strictly in alphabetical order, the XY chromosome member of this duo is Peter Baker. From 1988 to 2008, a Washington-based reporter and co-Moscow bureau chief with his wife for the Washington Post, and since then, a bona fide Beltway Bigfoot at the New York Times, where he currently holds the title of chief White House correspondent and where he routinely cranks out news cycle-dominating scoops, as well as front-page big-think takeouts on matters of long-range national and international importance. The double X chromosome partner in this dyad is Susan Glasser, former staffer at Roll Call and The Post, former editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine, former founding editor of Politico magazine, then editor of Politico Full Stop, and now a staff writer for The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly, widely read, and much-beloved column on life in that swampy, incestuous, parochial, badly-dressed, but undeniably important city that we call the capital of the United States. That's Washington, D.C. Baker and Glasser have written two previous books. The first published in 2005 was Kremlin Rising, 
an early look at Vladimir Putin's Russia, drawn from their time as co-Moscow bureau chiefs for The Post. The second, published just two years ago, was The Man Who Ran Washington, a best-selling biography of one of the key Washington figures of the second half of the 20th century, James Addison Baker III. Large as these topics were, and as excellent as both books were, their subject matter paled in almost every way imaginable in comparison to that of The Divider whose central, omnivorous, scenery-chewing, disgraced and utterly disgraceful, twice-impeached, insurrection-fomenting, democracy-imperiling president, truly is a character unlike any we've seen before in the Oval Office or in American political life more broadly. To take just one example, though it's the one from which the divider finds its title and its central theme, let's listen to Susan Glasser talking about Trump's infamous American carnage-invoking inaugural address, which George W. Bush aptly called quote, some weird shit in which she and Peter Baker conclude was more than that, a window into something deeper, darker, and stranger about Trump that he was the first and only president in history who never, not for one minute, saw national unity as a goal. In fact, quite the contrary. I think that for people sitting there listening to this inaugural address that was unlike any other modern inaugural address, that there really was this snap to it moment when it should have been And it was, I think, for many people, absolutely clear. You can't buy this BS idea that Trump is somehow just going to be a kind of regular president, but with more carnival barker aspects to him. Steve Bannon gave a frontline interviewer after he was thrown out of the White House, and he was recalling that moment. He helped to write the speech along with Stephen Miller. And he said, yeah, there was pressure on Trump even inside of his new set of staff to kind of moderate and be more normal, quote unquote. And Bannon is pushing him, pushing him, pushing him to be the most extreme version of himself. He says, look, we did not win an election to bring this country together. So that's the beginning of Trump's administration. Now we listen to Peter Baker here talking about some conclusions reached at the end of Trump's time in office. Baker, as he matter-of-factly states that, yeah, yeah, of course, A lot of people who served Donald Trump in office believe that he was the very opposite of what he hilariously, if disturbingly, called himself, quote, a very stable genius. The notion that he was not stable was something that was shared by a lot of people who worked for him, people that he himself hired to work for him, including, for instance, John Kelly, White House chief of staff, who bought a book on Trump's mental health in order to try to figure out what is this guy I'm working for? And he told people this is actually a really good guide to understanding the pathologies and the, the issues he was grappling with as a chief of staff to a man who was as mercurial and, and volatile as Donald Trump was. And in those final days in office, of course, we've seen multiple cabinet secretaries at least entertaining the idea of the 25th Amendment, the idea that they would declare him unable to serve out those final days in office, even though Mike Pence wouldn't go along with it. The divider is chock-a-block with stuff like this with the late great Ben Bradley used to call holy shit stories. And so luckily for us is this episode of the podcast in which Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, while talking about their book, serve as the most convivial, genial, and charming tour guides imaginable on a harrowing journey backwards through the four seemingly endless years that comprise Donald Trump's time in office, which as they point out rightly and unsubtly, also provide just a mild, wan augury of what a second Trump term would almost surely be. Four more frightening and country-shredding years of non-stop, unabated hell and high water.
I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. And as you know, if a thing like that happened, I would have no prohibition against running. You know that. You've already I do. And that's what I want people to understand. That would not take you out of the arena. It would not. But I think if it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Big problems. I just don't think they'd stand for it. They will not, they will not sit still and stand for this ultimate of hoaxes. You know that the legacy media will say you're attempting to incite violence with that statement. How do you respond to what will inevitably... That's not, that's not inciting. I'm just saying what my opinion is. I don't think the people of this country would stand for it. So there's Donald Trump with Hugh Hewitt last week, and we're here with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, the co-authors of the extraordinary and important new book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, which we're going to talk about at length. But first, we're going to talk about Trump out of the White House. Peter, Susan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. I will say, you know, I enjoy listening to Hugh Hewitt because at least some part of him is a journalist. He's kind of like, please say something more than just, you'll never see anything like it. He's like trying to bait Trump into saying something more explicit. The other thing I like about Trump is, you know, the legacy media. I think we're part of the legacy media here because it sure sounded like incitement to me. It's like Trump's like, I'm, just, I'm not inciting. I'm just saying fire in a crowded movie theater. That's not incitement. In this case, rather than going alphabetically, I'll go for the brains of the family here and start with Susan. Susan, when you hear Donald Trump say that, do you not think there's a little bit of a nice country here, be a shame if something happened to it quality to what Donald Trump is saying right now? <laughs> yeah, more than a little bit, it seems to me. I mean, look, this is Donald Trump being Trump. He is a bully. He is a blusterer and he is making threats. And that's what he did for four years in the Oval Office. And it's what he did for decades before he ever entered politics. Trump is the ultimate bad boyfriend. Like those people who think that they're going to change him, you're not going to change him. <laughs> you know, the past is prologue for Trump and we've heard it before. I like so this. Susan, bad I like this. boyfriend thing. Can I yeah. inject here? I think I was going yeah. to say, I think what Susan met there was, was, was a wife beater or uh, bad or, husband. Yeah, you know? bad husband, bad boyfriend, like wife beater, you know, serial abuser. The New York Times was the first to report right after the Mar-a-Lago search and seizure operation took place that Trump had reached out, I think through an intermediary to the attorney general and had said, hey, you know, we should really cool off the temperature here because, you know, things could get out of hand. And when I saw that in the paper, I was like, well, that's clearly coming from the Trump side. Why do they want that out there? And I think it was George Conway who I was talking to on this podcast who was like, that's the first of what will be a bunch of threats, basically. That's how we read that. And I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and kind of be like, well, you know, maybe not an explicit threat. But now that we've heard Lindsey Graham, Peter, you know, literally say on camera, riots in the streets, Republicans will be taking up arms, blah, blah, blah. And there's been a lot of Republicans echoing Trump. And now you have Trump saying it again here. Is it? Is there any other conclusion than that what Trump is trying to do is not just say nice country, it'd be a shame if something happened to it, but also to kind of keep that fever whipped up out there so that people are primed a little bit of more of a proud boys, like stand back and stand by a little bit of a very subtle call to arms. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, on the one hand, obviously, this is an issue that Merrick Garland has been thinking about a lot when it comes to the question of prosecuting in terms of what will it do to the public? Will it inflame the public? But even if Trump didn't mean it the way it came across, he was given the opportunity to disavow that idea. And he basically didn't. He said, well, it's not inciting. But then he didn't say, like, of course, I don't want violence. He didn't go there at all. Right, he right. said it in a half sentence and then quickly returned to his point, which is that yeah. people will not stand for it and you can read into it what you want to read into. It. And I think he meant for people to see it as a threat of some sort. 
Yeah. So Susan, I guess I ask you this, you know, you have that great luxury of doing pieces in the New Yorker where you kind of can stand back from something and not have to be part of the Twitter news cycle or even Peter's news cycle where his bosses are demanding copy every three hours to update the web version of the article, et cetera, et cetera. You could stand back still with that little bit of Olympian detachment that the New Yorker gives you the opportunity to do and do a thing at the end of the week that sort of says, here's the big takeaway for me about what happened this week, right? Where do you think right now, as we sit here and look at all of Trump's legal entanglements, where do you think we stand in this moment? Moment, the number of people who come up to me and are now the people who for four years were like, he's got to go to prison. He's got to go to prison. He's going to prison. And you're like, eh, I don't know. And they've all become now so singed and burned by what they saw as the failure to bring him to account that people are like almost kind of going, do you really think they might indict him? I don't know. Trump always gets away with it. Where do you think we stand on the various legal fronts that Donald Trump confronts and the peril that they might pose to his bodily liberty and to his political future? Well, I think you're exactly right. You know, for four years, Trump's critics were waiting. There was this sort of the fantasy of the transformative moment, the gotcha moment when he was going to somehow be dragged out of the White House in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs. And it was all somehow just going to go away. And, you know, first it was the Mueller investigation and it was the taxes and it was the Southern District of New York. And now he faces what looks to anybody like actually very, very serious legal jeopardy, right? It's hard on its face not to think that Donald Trump seems to have walked off from the White House with a large number of classified documents that he had no business keeping, that he rebuffed reasonable requests again and again and again to turn back over those documents, that he lied about it and is continuing to do so in addition to as Peter pointed out, essentially inciting violence and threats against the people who are attempting to do their jobs in the government. And yet, I think that there's an ingrained sense that Donald Trump always gets away with it. That's part of it. You said that. I agree with that. The other thing is the timetable, the calendar. Look at the schedule. We are already very, very close to the midterm election in 2022. Almost immediately thereafter that, we expect Trump to say whether he's running for president again. He has given every indication that he is running for president again. He seems to think perhaps this will help him and protect him a little bit more from potential conviction. The January 6th committee has landed some blows on Trump, but at the same time, that's not even in their mandate. They can't prosecute him in Congress. Right. This is a prosecuting him in the court of public opinion. So I would say it's right to be skeptical or at least wary that Donald Trump is ever going to face this kind of singular moment of accountability. So Peter, you, know, you you mentioned Merrick Garland and his constitutional, and I mean that with a small c, constitutional aversion to politics, wanting to restore the reputation of the DOJ, which a lot of people think was sullied by politicization. We'll get to that in a second too. Garland doesn't want a giant political fight. Last thing he ever wanted in the world would be the reaction to what happened when the FBI went down to Mar-a-Lago, which was the attacks on, on federal law enforcement, people talking about civil war. We see these in crazy poll numbers now, people who think civil war is at hand. Last thing he would want in the world, and yet he did it right? Not a dumb guy. I can't help but think that, you know, he knew what he was getting into when he decided to send the FBI to Mar-a-Lago. There's no world where Merrill Garland didn't understand that he was crossing a Rubicon there. And we now know that there were not just top secret documents, maybe some of the toppest secretest documents you could have, nuclear secrets potentially, right? And the DOJ keeps putting stuff out that is more indicative of what Susan said, that he resisted so that he didn't comply with subpoenas, that he lied about things. They're making their case in public through the courts, like in a legitimate way. They're not taking their foot off the gas, I guess is my point. And so is it not a reasonable conclusion? 
I mean, Katie Benner in your paper has, has kind of said, no, it won't happen before the midterm elections, but it could happen right after that. And I don't understand how he doesn't now without risking a different kind of backlash. People going, wait, oh, we got it. We found out all of that, that many documents. And now you're not going to indict him. What the fuck? Yeah, they seem to have shown their hand a little mm-hmm. bit. You read these documents and it does not, you know, mince words. I mean, words like obstruction of justice, concealing and hiding. They've made very clear that they consider a crime to have been committed here. And if it wasn't by the former president, the question is, who was it by? Right. So they haven't said that he is a target or anything like that. We don't know that he is. We ought to be careful about that. Everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But they have made very clear they think something very serious happened. He would not have sent the FBI in such a fraught moment without thinking that he had a big obligation to do so. Now, you know, there is this big question, though, beyond the specific facts and the specific red letter law issues of what does it mean if you were to prosecute a former president? On the one hand, you don't want to look like we're another banana republic or simply have a a new administration come in and prosecute the last one and set a precedent that could be used by the next administration if you don't particularly like Biden. On the other hand, if you let somebody get away with something that seems brazenly improper, at least, and you don't hold them accountable, are you creating a system where you have kings rather than presidents? And that's also anathema to a democratic system. So it's a really hard situation, I think, that Merrick Garland finds himself in. And I know that if there's anybody who's capable of evaluating in a calm, measured way, he seems to be that kind of a guy. And it may be a long time before we get an answer from him. But he did; he is taking pretty aggressive action, even if it's taking you know a certain amount of time. So Bill Barr was on Fox News some days ago talking about this question of of the indictment, which raises some of the things that Peter just talked about. You know, he might be indictable, but is it wise? Is it the best interest of the country? Let's play that. I think, you know, as I've said all along, there are two questions. Will the government be able to make out a technical case? Will they have evidence by which that that they could indict somebody on, including him? And I that's the first question. And I think they're getting very close to that point, frankly. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, there's another question is, do you indict a former president? What will that do to the country? What kind of precedent will that set? Mm-hmm. Will the people really understand that this is not, you know, failing to return a library book, that this was serious? So a lot to, a lot to say about that, you know, one of which is, it seems to me like that if you're paying attention at all, it's pretty clear to you. And the DOJ has made it, has done, had taken efforts. They put out the pic, the photographs of the, of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, which of course Trump thought he, they were criticizing his, his tidiness. But, you know, that, that was their way of saying this is not just, he, he has a, an overdue library book, right? There's, they're making that pretty clear. Do you think, Susan, that Bill Barr kind of has standing on this? I mean, like one of the things I most enjoy is the fact that liberals like never Trump Republicans more than they like even liberals. There's nothing better for a liberal in America than Nicole Wallace, Matthew Dowd, Stuart Stevens, Steve Schmidt, you know, take your pick. Somebody who's like, I'm not saying that they've done this, including Liz Cheney, by the way. It's like, hey, you know, John Heilman, when he was in the Bush administration, he actually applied jumper cables to the testicles of a guy in, in Abu Ghraib. And be like, oh my God, he's a torturer. And then I would say, yeah, I fucking hate Donald Trump. They'd be like, oh, John, come to my house for dinner. Let me write you a check. All is forgiven. You're my favorite person in the news. You know, Bill Barr has not gotten that reaction from liberals, even when he says things that are kind of been like, people are still kind of like, okay, no. that you're, 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 There's a line I have to draw somewhere in the sand here on this never Trump Republican shit. What do you make of Bill Barr, Susan, attempt to rehabilitate his reputation? Is he actually someone who, who has a good faith standing to actually make some of the comments he's making? How should we interpret at the meta level and the, the literal plane level the things that Bill Barr is saying there? 
<laughs> you know, I, I do think that uh, it's been amazing to watch the sort of next act of Bill Barr as this sort of anti-Trump t- truth teller. You know, I think he was quoted in an earlier round of frenzy over the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, calling it basically a crock of shit, Trump's excuses. You know, he he's carving out the sort of like plain spoken, blunt, you know, profane former attorney general slash avuncular expert. But I agree with you that somehow Bill Barr is like a line too far for most liberals to swallow. It's fascinating because, you know, Liz Cheney, even Dick Cheney, I mean, I will never, I am, I am scarred by the watching the House <laughs> Democrats. Do yeah. you remember this on the yeah. anniversary yeah. of January oh. 6th? And who was on the floor? The only Republicans on the floor were Dick Cheney, former House member, gave him yeah. standing to, to go on the House floor, and Liz Cheney's daughter. And there was like basically a receiving line as all of the most liberal House Democrats went there. So, it's fascinating. And they all, and they even, all wanted to throw him in jail. Like literally, like like six literally? weeks earlier, yeah. they were like, yeah. like I would I would still prosecute Cheney, war criminal. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. No kidding. I'm not yeah. I, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Well, here's the thing. It's a thing that I find very hard and frustrating. And, and in a way, by the way, I know we'll get to this. The book, our book, The Divider, one yeah. of the reasons that we wrote the introduction the way that we did, we said very clearly, why do we write a book looking back through all four years? of the Trump presidency. In part, it's a response to people like Bill Barr and Mitch McConnell who want to claim, well, everything was just fine until this unacceptable moment when I got off the train, when I got off the train. And that's just not a serious argument. Just if you look at Donald Trump, the man was the same guy on January 20th, 2017, as he was on January 6th, 2021. And you know, the escalation was a response to the factors and the people over four years. But the idea that something just snapped in him in the 2020 election because he lost is is literally defies all evidence and logic. And I think Bill Barr is a very interesting example of that. And, you know, again, does that mean that it's bad that he publicly broke with Trump? Is that it's bad that he refused to go along with the election? No, absolutely. Of course not. You know, I think it's never too late, right, to do the right thing or to call it like you see it. But it's very hard to reconcile with a lot of his other statements. Well, and speaking of which, not just statements, but actions. And and this is a piece of news from this last week, a different book by a different, a much less accomplished author or reporter, not even a reporter of any kind. Jeffrey Berman, who was the former head of the SDNY during the Trump years, puts out a book and got some news coverage this week by talking explicitly about the politicization of the DOJ under Bill Barr, reminding in a way, kind of serving like almost like a split screen to here's Bill Barr over there saying these things that liberals cheer and then kind of Berman in his own smaller, more limited, much more personal way saying, hey, um, uh, look, there's that guy on cable news, but then this is what really happened. And this is part of stuff that's in your book, but I, I do want to play Berman anyway, because he's a, you know, has firsthand testimony on this matter and he got some attention. I think rightly so. He did a bunch of news, a bunch of interviews. One of them was with our friend, Nicole Wallace on Deadline White House. And Nicole asked him to talk about the moment when uh, Berman first realized that Trump's DOJ was being corrupted and put to use to pursue a political agenda. We're investigating Greg Craig, a prominent uh, Democrat, uh, former uh, White House counsel to President Obama. And we're investigating him. And then, uh, you know, we get pushed by Maine Justice to say that it's time for you guys to even things out. We want you to indict Greg Craig before the midterm elections. The person said, hey, you know, you've just indicted two 
major allies of the president, Chris Collins, a Republican congressman from upstate New York, and uh, Michael Cohen, uh, the president's lawyer and fixer. And it's time to even things out by indicting a Democrat before the midterms. It was one of the most, probably the most outrageous thing I've ever heard in the history of my working for the DOJ. So that's like pretty compelling testimony right there, right, Peter? And, and you know, you've covered what our mutual friend Mark Lubitsch calls this town for a while. How do you think it ranks up? If we take Berman's testimony as fully accurate, that this is exactly what happened, that he got these phone calls that basically said, got even the score. How does that rank, do you think? He says, most outrageous thing I've ever heard in the history of my working for the DOJ. Is that up there really in the pantheon of some of the most corrupt things you've heard in the time you've been covering <laughs> D.C.? Well, you know, he does have other examples in his book, too. I'm yeah. reading it now. It's quite something. And prior to 2017, yeah, this would be a huge scandal. This would be an extraordinary scandal. Remember how much we, uh, you know, went after George W. Bush's administration for firing the handful. It was like seven U.S. attorneys because it was yeah. alleged they wanted them to be more political. Right. There wasn't anything near as explicit in that scandal as we have just seen from Jeffrey Berman's testimony, assuming, as you say, it's, it's to be credited. And it is remarkable. It's not surprising anymore because this was what we sort of saw for four years. In fact, President Trump specifically said to Jeff Sessions when he indicted those two Republican congresses before the midterms, he said in a tweet basically that he shouldn't have done it because it's going to cost us two seats. How dare you do it? He basically made clear in his view the Justice Department is meant to be a political tool of the president, and you do not go after the president's allies and cost him two seats in Congress. So it's not surprising then that the word would come down to Jeff Berman that, okay, that you did indict these two Republican congressmen, so you have to even it out. That is total keeping with what the attitude was at the top of the chain, the top of the chain being Donald Trump. So Susan, I, I return to, to Donald Trump and the future, then we'll, and we'll then step back and we'll really look at, at the divider, the book by our two guests today, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. You know, Trump on Hewitt, there's a real point that he's making, which is like, even if I was under indictment, that doesn't mean I can't run for president. I had the either fortunate or unfortunate duty of being guest hosting for Nicole when this story broke, when the Mar-a-Lago search happened. Amazingly, the last time I guest hosted for Nicole at any length was the week that the war broke out in Ukraine. It's like now, whenever I walk over there to dig in, everybody's <laughs> the staff's like, oh, fuck, Heilman's coming in in two weeks. Jesus, God knows it's going to happen. Last time we had a, the largest land war in Europe since the 1930s, and now we have this thing. Like, just please stay away from us henceforth. But here's my question. I, I started asking every Republican who came on, I'm like, do you think he'll run under indictment? And do you think that that would hurt or help his chances to get the nomination? And every single one of them, I, mean, I don't mean like there was like a lot of difference of opinion. No one was taking the position that no, he, that will keep him from running or that it would hurt him. Everybody was basically like, he's more likely to run and it will help him. And some people were like, he's certain to run and it will guarantee that he'd become the nominee. And we saw DeSantis people going like, oh, it's over for DeSantis now because Trump's going to get indicted. Let's kind of stipulate that for the sake of argument that he does get indicted by this Justice Department, by Merrick Garland, after the midterms. Is that what we're looking at? Donald Trump running under indictment, under federal indictment, and essentially clearing the Republican field? Because they're all like, well, you know, now the DOJ's targeted him. He's untouchable in the Republican Party, given the level of grievance that animates its nominating electorate at this point. You know, welcome to the law and order party, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, gee, we'd love to rush to embrace a candidate who very, very credibly stole top secret nuclear information and brought it with him to his club, his private club in Florida. Yeah, that sounds like the law and order party, right? It sounds like a party that has abandoned anything except being a cult of personality. And we know 
that story already, but it's still worth taking a step back, taking a breath and realizing that, you know, you are putting on television people saying, oh yeah, this would be really, really good for him. You know, actually it would be hugely politically beneficial. What kind of a moment are we in when it's the sort of inversion principle, it seems, with Trump? I do think that all of his talking, talking, talking about it, all of our collective talking about the prospects of him being indicted and then running while under such an indictment, it certainly has the effect, regardless of diminishing the impact, right? We're getting used to the idea, we're getting people used to the idea that he's going to be indicted. The shock value of that moment, I think, has diminished. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, co-authors of The Divider, here on Hell and High Water. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. So we're back with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser here on Hell and High Water. And Susan, I, I, you know, you guys make a real point. You, and you, I think you made it earlier in the podcast too, that Trump on January 6, 2021 was the same Trump as, as we saw on January 20th of 2017. And in fact, you know, if you covered that campaign as I did and you saw Trump threatening, you know, people, protesters being sent away from his rallies and him talking about punching that guy in the mouth and, you know, offering to pay people legal bills if they took on a protester, you realize that that Donald Trump existed even going back further than that. You guys start with American Carnage. I just want to like ask you both. I remember hearing it and thinking that it was chilling and so weird to hear such a dark, apocalyptic thing coming out of the mouth of American president. And we heard a lot of weird shit from Donald Trump in the course of his campaign, but there was something about that. It was very, it's very wordsmith. It's not a badly written speech. It's not a badly written chunk of, of text. It's just not anything you've ever heard from even the even the least sunny American presidents in their inaugural speeches don't like go down the dark dystopian lane. But here's Trump saying it. And man, did it really, I think for a lot of people when they heard it, they went, wow, we are really not in Kansas anymore. This is going to get weird real fast. Yeah, I think it was a holy shit moment in the American presidency. Absolutely. I mean, th- there was a kind of a before and an after. And before, even though In fact, the record was very clear about Donald Trump. Everything he did in the 2016 campaign was very clear. The bluster, the threats, the uh, extreme sort of arrogance and ignorance combined. There was still this element of willful delusion about Trump, especially the shock of that election, 
right? It was the biggest upset of any of our lifetimes in, in politics. And so there was this two-month interregnum period where there was, you know, a lot of garbage thinking, actually, about Trump, right? Like a lot of willful fantasy that he was somehow going to move to the center. And he did, in fact, pick some of these sort of more establishment types, Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis, and it was somehow going to be okay. And he wasn't really going to be as crazy and untruthful and dangerous and arrogant and ignorant as, in fact, he had been on the campaign trail. And so you had this period of time when people were just sort of absorbing the shock. There was a lot of fear, certainly, a lot of concern, but there was also a sense that it couldn't possibly be like this. And so I think that for people sitting there listening to this inaugural address that was unlike any other modern inaugural address, that there really was this snap to it moment when it should have been, and it was, I think for many people, absolutely clear. You can't buy this BS idea that Trump is somehow just going to be a kind of regular president, but with more carnival Barker aspects to him. And there's this great sort of revealing quote. Steve Bannon gave a frontline interviewer after he was thrown out of the White House And he was recalling that moment. He helped to write the speech along with Stephen Miller. And he's recalling this moment after the election. And he said, yeah, there was pressure on Trump even inside of his new set of staff to kind of moderate and be more normal, quote unquote. And Bannon is pushing him, pushing him, pushing him to be the most extreme version of himself. He says, look, we did not win an election to bring this country together. Well, that's what they told us in American Carnage. And Peter, Susan went right where I wanted to go because that that quote is in the first part of the book, which is called American Carnage. That quote is highlighted. I like the fact that you call Steve Bannon his chief ideologist, which is like apt, like better, more than better than chief strategist, better certainly not campaign manager. Steve Bannon can't manage anything, but but chief ideologist is right. Trump didn't have an ideology. Steve Bannon gave him one. Here's what I want to I want to like play this because to me, I will say that in addition to American Carnage, the American Carnage speech, the other thing that made me, I mean, look, I didn't have any, well, I don't know what I thought, but I, I do think that there were certain things that emanated from DC in those early days that made you say, okay, like what's really going on here, right? Like how nihilistic are they and what really are they going to get up to? And the other one, in addition to that speech, which was for obviously for public consumption for the millions of Americans, et cetera, the, the inaugural speech. The other one was about a month later, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, and a bunch of other people from the administration go to CPAC and, and get interviewed on stage. And I don't think Bannon had really done like a major public interview, major in quite that way, certainly not in, in the time when the new administration came in. So it's about a month in, and here's Bannon on stage, and he gets asked a question by Priebus about like what what this whole thing's about. What's what's going to be the governing principle of the of the Trump team? And Bannon um, just you know uncorks. He basically says, uh, "Oh, I've got an answer for you," and it comes in three parts. And if you're paying attention, you're going to be like, "Okay, these guys are here to burn the fucking house down." I think if you look at the lines of work, I, I kind of break it out into three verticals or three buckets. The first is kind of national security and sovereignty, and that's your intelligence, the Defense right. Department, Homeland Security. The second line of work is what I refer to as economic nationalism, and that is uh, Wilbur Ross at Commerce, Steve Mnuchin at Treasury, Lighthizer at, uh, at Trade, uh, Peter Navarro, Stephen Miller, these people that are rethinking how we're going to re- reconstruct the, uh, our trade arrangements around the world. The third, broadly, line of work is what is deconstruction of the administrative state. 
Now, he doesn't go on to describe very much what that means later in that clip. He mentions it again towards the end. He goes off on a tangent and talks about China and, and economic nationalism, which is important. But that phrase was very loaded, you know, and now in retrospect, of course, it seems obviously loaded as we, as we read Jonathan Swan writing these stories about what they're planning to do if they get back into the White House, which is basically really like tear the entire federal bureaucracy down to the studs. And that's what they're working on now as their transition plan for when Trump gets inevitably reelected in their view. But Peter, I ask you, as someone covering it, and then when you were going back and reflecting on it, reporting on it more for this book, there's so much of like what we think about Trump is he's a buffoon, that he's a stupid, that he's a hater. And we'll get back to the divider because it's an important part of the book, obviously, because it's the title of the book and it's an important thesis of the book. But in a way, people were terrified by him, but also sort of thought he's a, a bit of a clown, right? But then you have people like Steve Bannon who are sitting around saying things like deconstruction of the administrative state. Now, I don't think Donald Trump, with a thesaurus and a dictionary in hand, he couldn't give you a definition of what that means. But anybody who used to report on Washington for a period of time would be like, wow, that sounds pretty ominous, deconstruction of the administrative state. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, look, Steve Bannon's quote there is foreshadowing for the next four years. And I think that, yeah. look, we've had plenty of outsider presidents, anti-establishment candidates who run for the White House who say they're going to make America great. He's not the first one to say they're going to make America great. I mean, Ray could use that phrase. Clinton used that phrase. What Trump did under Bannon's prodding is to wage war, in effect, on the government as it existed, on the institutions as they had existed now for the last 246 years. And we talked a little bit about that earlier with Jeff Berman, right? In other words, to him, Justice Department, the military, all of these agencies, they're about serving his political interests, not about any kind of apolitical larger goal. And he never fully understood that. He never understood why somebody would tell him, no, you can't use the Justice Department to prosecute your enemies just because you don't like them. And no, you can't have the military send their troops in the streets in order to you know, make yourself look tough against a bunch of unarmed protesters, that this is in fact not meant to be your personal army. And we, we talk about that a lot in The Divider, which counts, for instance, the, you know, the battles he had with the generals who found him to be reckless and dangerous. And we saw that again and again. And I think that leads all back to that quote you just played from, uh, from Steve Bannon. They were going to wage war on the institutions as they had been interpreted by parties on both sides of the aisle for, hundred, for literally hundreds of years. So Susan, to go back to Bannon's quote that you cited, right, which is, we didn't win this election to bring the country together. I, you know, the, the way that it's worked in the past in Washington, and, and, and it makes sense. The reason that people try to bring the country together, so to speak, often is not out of some purely noble impulse, but because you bring the country together and you can get more shit done. The best example I always give, I know you guys will all smile and nod at this, right? George W. Bush gets elected a very contentious election in 2000. He loses the popular vote and he arguably gets illegitimately installed by the Supreme Court. And what does George W. Bush do? He goes in and he says, okay, if I only have the support of the people who voted for me, I'm fucked here. I can't get anything done. So I'm going to go and I'm going to do no child left behind. I'm going to do a big, huge bipartisan thing that I, I can get 70 votes in the Senate for this thing. And if I can get my approval rating up into the 50s, that's going to give me more runway to get more stuff done. Purely self-interested, pure politics. That makes sense to expand our coalition when we were a, when we were a minority president. So I guess my, one of my questions in like re, in, about the book that I want you to talk about is how, not like that Bannon and, and Trump and others, that they had this instinct, what set them apart was just that they didn't care about uniting the country, but they saw a different way to win. The natural way that we all think, well, you got its math, man. You got to add people to your coalition. You don't win by subtracting, you win by adding. They were like, no, no. 
there's a different way to win. And, and they pursued that way to win. Yeah, well, that's right. First of all, their definition of success was actually not getting stuff done. It was winning re-election and benefiting politically. Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about getting stuff done. He He's not really an ideological politician, although he had Steve Bannon as an ideologist, and he's, he's happy to pick and choose or to adopt other people's ideology as it benefits him. Donald Trump was a huge favorite, something like 80% of white Christian evangelicals in this country supported Donald Trump in his election and his re-election campaign. Why? Not because Donald Trump is some avatar of Christian evangelicism, but because he made a deal with them and he was willing to carry out his side of the bargain as he saw it. So I do think it's really important because Peter and I wrote a whole book, a whole biography of Jim Baker, a guy for whom getting shit done was actually the mission. And he and George H.W. Bush, whatever you thought of their ideology, were essentially not very ideological people. They were all about making deals, making things happen. And and that involved the kind of political math that you're talking about. It involved building as big of a coalition as possible. It involved moving towards the center in a general election. After right. the general election, it involved sitting down literally weeks after you've savaged Michael Dukakis as some like flag burning, unpatriotic, you know, flame throwing liberal, sitting down with the Democratic leadership in Congress and finding a way to make an ending to the Contra Wars of the 1980s, right? right. That's what we used to see. Now, Trump, I think the point is that he didn't make the fissures in this country. He didn't create many of the divisions. What he did that is unique and that he was uniquely successful at was to define his political identity as exacerbating those divisions, profiting by them. It's such a tight fit. His political persona is his persona, period, right? Like Donald Trump, he only knows one setting as a person, and that is to fan the flames of conflict, to be combative. He gave this interview to Time Magazine just a few weeks into his presidency. He said being combative, finding enemies, exploiting that is, is the key, as he saw it, to being president. Well, right. obviously, that's not the key that any other president mm. saw. To your point about not being interested in persuading anyone else, right? Like never adding to your coalition. Interestingly enough, it was the Barack Obama presidency in which this insight began to take hold in Washington, that because right. of a variety of reasons, including the, the fragmenting of the media, the development of the internet and social media, it was the Obama folks who I think really began to understand this moment in time and to realize that it was much harder to persuade voters than it was to rally and motivate your own voters, to speak essentially to your side. And that was something right. that Obama did. And it's why by the end of his presidency, he didn't really give a lot of interviews to the New York Times. And he spent his right. time talking to car blogs and people who already supported him. The difference is that you know Obama is in a way, a constitutional law professor at heart, right? Like he speaks analytically. He's not an inflammatory person and his politics were not inflammatory. But Trump took that insight and just ran wild with it. Peter, I, you know, I want to ask you, I'm going to give you the, the one of the great softball questions of this, of this interview, because I've been, I was a little tough on you earlier. You know, you, you and you and Susan both, you guys were co-bureau chiefs in Moscow for the Washington Post before, back around the time when uh, that period I was talking about with George W. Bush. You know, there was an era in Moscow where if you were a Moscow bureau chief, you were like, you're, you were over there with Bill Keller and, and David Remnick, and, and you were, you were watching the fall of communism and, and Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika, and then the rise of Yeltsin and all that. It was just like one, I was the center of the 
universe. You guys got there after that. I can't help but think a little bit like, you know, okay, this is gonna be a good job, but the most dramatic thing is over. But you guys get to cover the beginning of the rise of Putin, it turns out. And it's not as a feel-good story. It turns out to have enormous consequences going forward for the world, for places like Ukraine. And also, it hovers over the Trump administration in a lot of ways. And so here's my softball question. You guys have a lot of foreign policy chops. You use a lot of foreign policy in the book. You guys have news on Russia. You have news about a lot of different places where Donald Trump his approach to foreign policy differed from other presidents. Like if there are three things that you think you learned in the divider in reporting it about Trump's foreign policy that are either newsy or newsworthy or things that you just didn't know, you covered this administration very, very closely, both of you, where you like this brought new information that's really important to understanding the ways in which Trump's foreign policy was carried out and put America in a different place in the constellation of world affairs. Yeah, well, thank you. That's a good question. And it's not a softball. <laughs> but um, well, it's not. A, it's not. It's not. It's not, it's not a beanball. Let's put it that way. I mean, I, no, I'm not, not saying ball, it's, yeah. it's not an underhand pitch, but, it's, it's, but it gives you a big chance to go off on the book. So be my guest. There you go. This there you goes. go. Fair enough. And, and the book did give us a chance to go back and learn things we didn't know. And I would, by the way, add, because a lot of people have asked this question, things that are in the book that are new are things we learned after his presidency. These are right. not things we yes. knew at the time that we held back. Somebody seems to think that that's the case. That's not the case. We reported everything we could while he was in office, believe me. And then we decided that we didn't know everything. So let's go back and try to re-report it for a book. That's what we've been doing the last 18 months. I just want to pause so, for one second and say, I find this fucking thing of these people out there who are all like, why didn't you guys report these things when you were covering it? Which of course I've heard, you know, at various times like when it was, it's like, uh, one of the things that drives me battiest, like anybody really thinks that people in the news business don't report the news they have when they first get it. You get the great stories after the campaign is over or after the president has left office. That's when people tell you that's the good right. stuff. Anyway, sorry, go on. Peter. That's right. No, that's right. And, and frankly, if you look at the coverage from back then, it's of a piece. I mean, you know, what we've got in this book, I think is important and revelatory, but expands on their coverage that was happening at the time. I mean, all these themes were written about then. But you ask about foreign policy. One of the things that one of the stories we learned that I thought was really interesting and kind of revealing is a small one that has big meaning. As much as Trump seemed to love the autocrats, as much as he seemed to revere or admire the Erdogan's and the Xi Jinping's and the Vladimir Putin's, I think it was a one-way street. There's this great scene in the book where Trump is meeting with Putin and he's bragging to Putin about, well, you know, Poland wants to name a Ford after me and Israel is going to name a settlement after me. And Putin, with great disdain, completely deadpan, says to him, well, maybe, Donald, they should just name all of Israel after you. And it was like this incredible jab by Putin mocking Trump's narcissism and his, you know, his insecurities and all that. And indicates, I think, in that one small moment that Putin does not think of Trump the way Trump thinks of Putin, right? He does not think that Trump is this great, strong guy who's a wonderful leader, that the way that uh, Trump talks about Kim Jong-un and, and all these guys. Putin thinks Trump is kind of a joke, or at least that's what the comment seems to indicate. And I thought that was a pretty interesting and revelatory scene. But there's some others, like how the allies tried to figure out what to do with him. You know, Angela Merkel, the famously stodgy chancellor of Germany, trying to figure out what do I do with this guy? He's such a different personality than anything she'd ever dealt with. So what does she do to figure out Donald Trump? She reads Playboy magazine. She goes back and she finds Trump's interview with Playboy magazine way back in the, uh, was it the 80s, Sue? 1989. Um, 1989, which actually is kind of a primer on Trump's view of the world that stayed consistent over time. As inconsistent as he is on a lot of details, he was consistent on his view of the world, which is the allies are ripping us off, trade deals are all bad, right. all this kind of stuff. And you had somebody like Angela Merkel trying to discern 
and learn and figure out and examine this guy who she cannot figure out by reading Playboy because what else is she going to do? And the, the, the other story I'll tell, and I'll because you asked for three, yeah. is this is also a Trump story. Remember, he told us all how flattered he was that Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, had nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize, how, how amazed he was that Shinzo Abe would do this for him. What he didn't tell us was that he asked Shinzo Abe to do it. They had dinner at his uh, residence in, in New York, I think it was, right, Sue? And he said, would you mind, you know, nominating me for the Nobel Peace Prize? And Abe, because this is what the world leaders are trying to figure out what to do, plays to his ego and says, sure, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And that got Abe enormous credit with Trump, this act of, of flattery, in effect, which was the single most important diplomatic card for world leaders in the last four years. Susan, I want you to talk about generals because I believe it was in the New Yorker. You guys put out this excerpt three weeks ago, four weeks ago, whatever it was. They got some news because of what it said about Trump and his relationship to what he liked to call my generals. This is a kind of an offshoot of foreign policy, which is military affairs and Trump's fetishization of the military and his absolute glee that he got some guy called Mad Dog Mattis to come be his, his first defense secretary. You know, people remember that. He's like, Mad Dog Mattis. I'm like, I always wondered, even at the time, I was like, I'm sure that guy's nickname isn't really Mad Dog Mattis. I'm sure Mattis is like going, what the fuck is going on with this guy? But it is important because well, no one doesn't want to sound too old here, but like, I mean, there was a time when Bill Clinton's it was his salute to limp, you know, like when he got on Air Force One, people would be examining the salute. Was it firm enough? He had never served. And oh my God, Bill Clinton never served. Oh my, I mean, that was a huge issue in 92. Could this supposed draft dodging pot smoking baby boomer who had never served be president of the United States? And, and now Donald Trump, who, you know, not only didn't serve, but also had some very outre views about the military, becomes president. No one seems to question it. Just talk about his relationship with his generals and what you guys reveal in the book. And, and don't hesitate to, to retell the thing that Trump and Hitler is a thing, you know, and the, and the invocations <laughs> of Germany. Like, it's just a, it's a light motif, uh, but it, it relates to the generals, too. So I just run free on Trump and his generals. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, Donald Trump fetishized my generals and the idea of the military. It was just a sort of irresistible backdrop for a man who was obsessed with projecting strength, uh, quote unquote, power, quote unquote. Of course, he wanted to have a bunch of big, burly guys in uniforms saluting and saying, yes, sir. Uh, the problem for Donald Trump was that the military was completely different than what he thought it was. And that's where his ignorance tripped him up again and again and again. And so from the very beginning, he has a very charged, complicated, and troubled relationship with the generals because they don't actually turn out to salute and say, yes, sir, how high may I jump, sir? And that's just not our culture when it came to the kinds of things that he wanted them to do, which at times veered into outright illegality, certainly were questionable from the point of view of American national security. And so that leads to this sort of extraordinary confrontation between John Kelly, Trump's second White House chief of staff, retired four-star Marine general, very close of course, with Jim Mattis, another four-star Marine general retired, and Joe Dunford at the time was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, another four-star Marine general. The three of them, their careers were intertwined. Both Dunford and Kelly had worked very closely with Mattis. Mattis had actually given John Kelly the first battlefield promotion to general in decades. And so Trump, of course, was completely ignorant. He had no idea who he had hired for his own cabinet or to run his government. And so he didn't realize that these no. three were united in a a fraternity. And he's furious. And he says to John Kelly at one point, not too far into this, he says, you know, you fucking generals, why won't you do what I want you to do? Why can't you be more like Hitler's generals? 
And John Kelly can't believe his ears, right? He says, what are you talking about? Yeah, the Nazi generals in World War II, they did what Hitler wanted. Kelly says, do you even know what you're talking about? They tried to kill Hitler three times. Trump says, no, 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 you're wrong. They were totally loyal to him. That was the definition of what Donald Trump wanted in his generals. He wanted Nazis who would salute Hitler. I mean, the fact that we're even talking about this, we're talking about the president of the United States of America. And so flash forward to this sort of crucible year of 2020. He's gotten rid of Joe Dunford. He's installed another chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, from the Army. He thinks Milley is going to be much more loyal to him. He's wrong. And he figures that out only after this disastrous photo op in Lafayette Square. And Milley walks in it in his combat fatigues. He realizes right away it's a terrible mistake. He actually publicly apologizes because he's, you know, getting enormous blowback. And Milley is agonized over should he actually quit as a result of this terrible co-opting of the military, right? He understands that Trump has been trying for years basically to politicize the military. He's done it. And anyways, we obtained for the book this incredible resignation letter that Milley wrote that he didn't send because he would advise that we don't have any tradition of quitting. And that, in fact, if you wanted to really resist Trump, it would be much better to stay there at that point and let him fire you if it came to that. But he writes this letter. And what does he say? It harkens back to that Nazi general conversation with John Kelly, because basically it says, you are doing grave and irreparable damage to this country. But more importantly, I don't even believe, and this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying to the president, I don't even believe that you subscribe to our democratic principles. I believe that you subscribe to many of the ideas that we fought against in World War II. And honestly, doing that reporting, I can't think of anything else in my several decades of covering Washington. It's just literally mind-blowing that this is what the leadership of the Pentagon comes to believe in a very nonpartisan way about a president of the United States. So I want to play Millie just because we're talking about him. There was reporting, I believe, this maybe Woodward reporting that back in 2021 at some point, where he's like, he started to reveal some of the stuff that we now know from your book and other books about Millie and his dilemmas that he faced. And there was a discussion in, I think it was the Woodward Costa book where he talked about how Millie had this moment where he was like kind of back channeling with the Chinese because in that period in January of 2021, and he gets called to the hill to explain, because this is a furor, right? And so Millie gets called up to the Hill and put in front of the Center Armed Services Committee and asked, what did you actually do in this period? Were you sitting outside the chain of command? Did you undermine Trump? What was going on? And he gave an account of it. But in this clip that I'm playing here, he is describing to the Center Armed Services Committee, Nancy Pelosi's concern at that moment that Trump might decide to attack China as like a wag the dog thing in the January 2021 period. So let's listen to what Millie had to say about that here. Later that same day, on 8 January, Speaker of the House Pelosi called me to inquire about the President's ability to launch nuclear weapons. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made, very, or made various personal references characterizing the President. I explained to her that the President is the sole nuclear launch authority and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the President of the United States. There are processes, protocols, and procedures in place, and I repeatedly assured her that there is no chance 
of an illegal, unauthorized, or accidental launch. First of all, I'm really glad Mark Milley wasn't my dad because anybody who talked to me like that, if I just said, just, that's just like Senate testimony. So like hearing that tone of voice, I'm like, makes me nervous just to hear it. Like, holy shit, you don't want to get on the wrong side of Mark <laughs> Milley. Peter, you know, Nancy Pelosi was worried. A lot of people were worried. A lot of people were worried about a lot. Trump in foreign affairs, in particular, the guy, the notion that Donald Trump had his finger on the button and that, you know, little rocket man, the provocations around Kim Jong-un and, and North Korea. One of the themes that comes through in The Divider, your book, Donald Trump came closer than people realized. Did get involved in a foreign entanglement into some kind of a military confrontation with some foreign actor or... Trump came a lot closer than people realized actually pulling out of NATO. These are things that one will learn in the divider, how much closer on both fronts. So Nancy Pelosi was right to be worried. I mean, well-grounded fears. And Nancy Pelosi wasn't the only one who was concerned in that period. We've kind of forgotten a little bit of just how fraught that moment felt when he, uh, in the final 14 days of his presidency, it felt like almost anything could happen. But it preceded that, of course. And, and in fact, the notion that he was not stable was something that was shared by a lot of people who worked for him, people that he himself hired to work for him, including, for instance, John Kelly, White House Chief of Staff, who bought a book on Trump's mental health in order to try to figure out what is this guy I'm working for? And he told people this is actually a really good guide to understanding the pathologies and the, the issues he was grappling with as a chief of staff to a man who was as mercurial and, and volatile as Donald Trump was. And in those final days in office, of course, we've seen multiple cabinet secretaries at least entertaining the idea of the 25th Amendment, the idea that they would declare him unable to serve out those final days in office, even though Mike Pence wouldn't go along with it. In terms of military consequence, there were times when he was pushing, well, why don't we just strike their missile bases in Iran? He'd be told, well, you can't do that. That's a war crime. We don't have a legal justification to do that. They're allowed to have those and we're not allowed to simply go there because we don't like them. There are times when he was ready to play a game of nuclear chicken, in effect, with Kim Jong-un. And the staff would kind of freak out and say, well, wait a second, maybe you could be this great peacemaker instead, which is how he kind of got turned around in, from fire and fury to I'm having a love affair with Kim Jong-un. As oddly head-snapping as that turn was, it was meant to at least get him off the war path. And so, yeah, he did have an aversion to overseas wars. In some ways, he shared Obama's views of the Middle East and the Iraq war and the Afghan war and all that. Right. But there was also this sort of desire on his part to show how tough he was and to demonstrate that he couldn't be pushed around, that he would be the one guy in the world who would take out the bad guys like Soleimani and al-Baghdadi, even if he didn't want to do any kind of sustained military effort. All right, we're going to take uh, one more quick break, and then we'll be back with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, co-authors of The Divider, here on Helen Highwater. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. There are all these people. We've talked about Jim Mattis a second ago. I mean, we were talking about Millie, Tillerson, all these people, especially on the foreign policy side, Kelly. Serious people, serious people with serious careers who decided to serve Donald Trump, right? And the, one of the great mysteries has been what their roles really were. How do they rationalize deciding to go in to the administration, stay in the administration, and so on? Here's a thing that will take you back if you're out there listening. The reporting in, in the late part of 2017, it wasn't very long into the administration when Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, former big oil executive, very handsome and very stately Texan with the Southern accent, was reported that he had called Trump a moron. And there was a whole fury of discussion. Did Rex Tillerson really call Trump a moron or not? And so Tillerson goes on with Tapper, Jake Tapper on CNN in October 2017. And this is what happened. Tapper's like, so did you call him a moron or not is Jake's question here. And let's listen to what Tillerson said. 
I'm not going to deal with that kind of petty stuff. I mean, this is a town that seems to relish uh, gossip, rumor, innuendo, and they feed on it. They feed on one another in a very destructive way. I don't work that way. I don't deal that way, and I'm just not going to dignify the question. I, I call the president Mr. President. He and I have a very, very open, frank, and candid relationship. Whatever happened, it is serious. So can you please clear it up? As I said, Jake, I'm not playing. These are the games of Washington. These are the destructive games of this town. They're not helpful to anyone. And so my position on it is, I'm not playing. I'm not playing. You want to make a game out of it, I'm not playing. Jake rightly said to him, I give you 53 opportunities to say you didn't call Donald Trump a moron. It would be very easy just to say that, Mr. Secretary. You pointedly refused to say I did not call him a moron. Later, of course, turned out that what he called him was a fucking moron. And that was why Tillerson was able to like, I, oh, I don't know if I called him a moron. But fuck, if you said fucking moron, I definitely would have said yes. I would have been caught redheaded. Susan, answer the question. Rex Tillerson, Jim Mattis, all the panoply of adults in the room in your real-time reporting and, and more particularly in this book because you got to go back and talk to a lot of them. You guys did hundreds of interviews for the book. And as Peter said, you're going back really in, in the way historians do here, even though this is closer to first draft of history or second draft of history than what we'll get from the Robert Caro of, of Trump 100 years from now. I, God pity the man who has to do that. You know, Caro might actually still be alive at that point because I think he's going to live to be like 300. He's still going to be working on the last Lyndon Johnson book. What did you learn about the mixture of motivations of people. There is a, a one school of thought that is basically, yeah, some of you said you wanted to be the adult in the room and it would have been much worse if you hadn't been there. But really, it was more about proximity. These are people's theses about this. More about proximity to power, more about corruption, more about seduction, more about this, that, and the other thing. Just talk a little bit about it because I think it's a complicated thing and I don't think there is one real answer to it. But among this crowd, the real grownups, what did they think they were doing and what did they do? What can they actually claim credit for having accomplished if the theory for their being in was, well, things would be so much worse if we weren't there, what did they stop from happening? Yeah, no, I think it is one of the enduring questions of the whole Trump presidency. And so it's a big theme in our book, because of course, without these people, Donald Trump would have just been an angry old dude shouting at the television in between golf games, right? I mean, you know, he he needed them, especially because he knew so very little about government and how it works and didn't really understand what he had gotten himself into. And so he hires these people. And at first, he basically has no clue. He's never met them before. He has no idea about Rex Tillerson, never met him before, no idea about Jim Mattis. He's convinced to hire these people. He's shocked and pretty angry pretty quickly when he realizes that they're not just saluting and following orders a la the Nazi generals. And Rex Tillerson, I think, was one of the ones who struggled the most in Donald Trump's orbit because he's just not somebody who suffers fools gladly. And he quickly seemed to understand that Donald Trump, in his view, was a fool and he couldn't hide his disdain. The military types lasted a bit longer, like Jim Mattis. Perhaps they were used to dealing with civilians they considered to be buffoons for years. So they were, you know, more practiced at the art of it. I do think that Mattis probably had a better sense of what he was getting into than Rex Tillerson did with Trump. But interestingly, Mattis and Tillerson had never worked together before. They forged a close working relationship and partnership, and they quickly became kind of an axis opposed to some of the wilder, more reckless things coming out of the White House. And, you know, you did see that there was a sense that we have to stop Donald Trump. And, and I can't think of any real precedent for that in our national security recent history, right? It's just something that's almost unimaginable. And yet at the same time, Donald Trump's 
instincts for finding the weaknesses in people, for finding weak people or flawed people, creating conflict in his inner circle. That benefited Trump too. Even when he had people who were resisting him, they were fighting with each other in a way that I did not fully understand at the time. And that is definitely part of our reporting here in this early era of the axis of adults. In fact, it wasn't an axis at all because you had H.R. McMaster as the national security advisor, and he was fighting like cats and dogs with the other members of the so-called axis of adults, the Jim Mattis and Tillerson in particular. They were barely on speaking terms. They wouldn't meet with him, in fact, in person, largely. And McMaster was furious about this. And they had basically a difference that's very interesting for those who are going to study Trump in the future and the question of the vulnerability of democracy to individuals, because they basically had a huge disagreement about how to most effectively constrain Donald Trump. And H.R. McMaster infuriated Kelly and Mattis and Tillerson because they felt that he was enabling Trump's worst impulses, that Donald Trump would say, well, I want to see a plan for evacuating all the American military dependents from South Korea. And, you know, Jim Mattis, his instinct is no way. Fuck you. I'm not going to give you that plan, because if you do that, you're basically going to create war and you're going to tell Kim Jong-un that we're pulling out and it's time for a conflict. And you're going to create a war in Korea if you do this. So I'm not going to give you options. H.R. McMaster says, well, he's the president, so we have to do it. And that way, we'll just convince him that it's too reckless. And this infighting, I think, is really something that historians are going to look at as a way in which Donald Trump has his whole career used a kind of divide and conquer uh, way of running things and the conflicts among his inner circle as a way of maintaining his own power. So that's one thing that really leapt out at me. I was trying to remember how many chiefs of staff Trump had, like whether it was 43 or 57 or whatever it was. But like there was a lot of discussion about Jared and Ivanka being at different times, incredibly influential or not influential at all. The generals, so-and-so had his ear for a period of time. And then, you know, Bannon was very influential and then he gets booted out of the White House. It's a revolving door over there, right? So over four years in the White House, is, is there anybody you two identified as having been consistently influential with Trump where Trump was like for four years, Trump relied on someone's judgment, relied on their insight, relied on their advice, whatever. A constant presence. I'm not saying for good or ill. I'm just saying someone who Trump, like just from day one to day last, he relied on that person, trusted them, either in the family member or not, had Trump's ear for four years. I think the one person yet that identify, certainly outside of his family, was Stephen Miller, who was there from day one, stayed all the way through the end, never seemed to fall out with the president, never seemed to be on his bad side. I can't remember any time that Trump ever trashed him, and he trashed everybody else pretty much at some point or another. And Miller, whose hawkish, hardline views on immigration basically were given free reign under Trump, you know, he had a great deal of latitude and a great deal of running room there. Even Jared, you know, was on Trump's bad side from time to time in private. Trump would deride his own son-in-law. He'd say, well, he's just catering to his friends, liberal friends in New York. They're not my people, you know, that kind of thing. With the exception of his daughter and his blood relatives, he basically at some point or another fell out with Almost everybody, and Stephen Miller is the one person I could think of who's who's the exception. I don't know, Sue, if you think of anybody else, but that's the one that comes to mind. Yeah, no, that's pretty much right. And, you know, that tells you everything. Stephen Miller is not a peer. He's not a (laughs) principal. He's a staffer who was really, really gifted at staying in the boss's good graces. Oh, man. You know, I'll say the only time I really ever liked Trump is when I hear that he's trashing Jared behind his back. I'm like, oh, okay, Trump did not, (laughs) he's not a total fool. He sees, well, he's one viper in the grass. 
I want to ask about Melania and I want to make sure this question goes to Susan because you guys have reporting in the book that's got some attention in the last week as copies of it have made their way around in the mainstream media. And some of it relates to Melania Trump. Again, another great mystery for a lot of people. What the fuck is this marriage all about? So I want, here's a little, a little Melania Trump. Just remember what it sounded like when she went out on stage and gave a speech to support him at the 2020 Republican convention in August of that year. This is her talking about how just incredible her husband is. In my husband, you have a president who will not stop fighting for you and your families. I see how hard he works each day and night. And despite the unprecedented attacks from the media and opposition, he will not give up. In fact, if you tell him he cannot be done, he just works harder. Donald wants to keep your family safe. He wants to help your family succeed. He wants nothing more than for this country to prosper and he doesn't waste time playing politics. I believe that we need my husband's leadership now more than ever in order to bring us back once again to the greatest economy and the strongest country ever known. Susan, in the book, The Divider, there's a different account. The one that's gotten attention, which is Melania Trump saying to her husband a few months earlier, now we're in 2020 and the people will remember the year of the re-election, year of COVID, year of the George Floyd social justice protests, the year of biblical plagues, basically, in 2020. And apparently, Melania Trump, no fool, at, at some point earlier in the year was like, you're blowing this, according to the divider, saying to Donald, he's blowing it, meaning COVID. He was blowing his response to COVID, which, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to see that, but good for her to point out. You now understand Donald Trump's relationship with Melania to be what? It seems to me that it was just as transactional as all of Donald Trump's other relationships. One of our former colleagues, Mary Jordan, wrote a very interesting book about Melania. She came up with the very revealing detail that Melania Trump used the occasion of Donald Trump's winning the presidency, which shocked and dismayed her. Remember, she didn't want to move down here to Washington. What did she do? She renegotiated her prenup to make sure she benefited more and that her son, Barron, was placed on equal footing with his siblings from Trump's previous marriage. And I think it was a transaction. You listen to the clip of that speech of Melania, you can see that she has a troubled relationship with the truth, perhaps <laughs> not as extreme a one as, as Donald Trump, but she's certainly willing to do and say things that if you put her under a lie detector, she would not you know, credibly be able to repeat as truthful statements. I think it's very interesting that she was not only a very low profile first lady, but she had a very contentious relationship with her own staff as well. Some of the more damning accounts have come out of that office. And you look at one of the more entertaining of mostly these sort of dreadful gunk in these Trump administration memoirs was Melania's longtime aide, Stephanie Grisham, who served, yeah. of course, a brief tour as Trump's White House press secretary, in which he's famous for being the only White House press secretary never to give a briefing, despite then calling her book Call the briefing, which yeah. is a level of like trolling that, you know, it's hard to even understand a maneuver as complicated as that. But nonetheless, she has a lot of very revealing anecdotes in that book. And I think Melania really fell out uh, also like with her former best friend who she had brought in to help with the inauguration and, and other things. And, you know, look, Melania Trump was misunderstood initially as this sort of, you know, resistance damsel in distress, you know, this somehow yeah, sort of right. imprisoned in Trump Tower. Obviously, that's not the case. She particularly shared Trump's disdain for the media and a sort of being prone to conspiracy theories and a very negative interpretation of where the country was at and how her Donald was being viewed. 
So you get, Peter, you get towards the end of the book, I said we were now, we're kind of moving into 2020 here. And, you know, it's obviously a consequential year. Your fifth section of the book is called this Trumper Damarung, which is like, you know, those are the kind of things I'm a sucker for those kind of plays on words. I worked a long time to try to get the pronunciation right on that. Trumper Damarung? Trumper Damarung? Okay. <laughs> That's um, very good. <laughs> That's the beauty when I, you make up the word. You can say it however you say want. Say it any way you want. Right. Yeah, yeah, so like, just tell me about, you know, in that section of the book, that's where you're dealing with 2020 and, and more in particular dealing with the election and the fallout from the election and the attempt to steal an election, you know? And there's been a million words written about it. Anybody who's writing a book is in the challenged position of like the one six committee is bringing out new things. I've been in this world myself. I know what it's like. It's terrible. Like you're like, one hand is great more sources, more leads, more everything. On the other hand, like a prosecutor, you don't want to be Ken Starr working on this book for the next 400 years. You know, <laughs> I, like, God, stop with the leads. I just, I can't, we can't do this anymore. There's only two of us. What do you think in summary, looking at the book, and it's a really interesting, compelling read through that period. But as you think about it now, what do you think you, against all of the flood of the information that's been coming out and all the different sources we now have and other accounts, and as I said, people who have subpoena power, which you don't, what do you think you learned in doing the reporting on that that's edifying that was where you're like, not necessarily some news nugget, but where you're like, okay, I think I understand this better now. And because I understand it better now, I, and I, I appreciate more what the actual significance of what happened in that period was post-election and what it might mean in the future if Donald Trump were ever to get back inside the White House again. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the right question. And I would love subpoena power next time. Hopefully we can arrange that. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of great reporting out there by our journalistic colleagues, by the, the January 6th committee, by all these investigators. And we we obviously are adding what we can to it. I think the most important part of that section of the book, from my point of view, is how much it is the culmination of the other parts of the book. That to get to that part, you now see it it's in a more clear way because you revisited what happened leading up to it. It should not have been a surprise to any of us. It was, in fact, eminently predictable. In fact, he even basically told us publicly, I'm going to do this before he did it. Because starting in the spring of 2020, he says, basically, if I don't win, it's because somebody else cheated. In other words, I will not accept defeat. I will not accept defeat. And to go back and realize from the beginning in 2017, all the way up until this moment that he has been laying the ground for it, trying to turn the Justice Department into his personal tool, trying to get the military to be his loyal guard, trying to diminish and denigrate the institutions of American life, including, by the way, the media, by discrediting anybody else who might offer contrary information to the public. He has set the stage for this ultimate act that no sitting president has ever done in our history to try to overturn a democratic election. And we've kind of like gotten used to it as if somehow this is just one more Trumpian blah, blah, blah. But in fact, this is a singular event in American history. I think we cannot overestimate its significance and why we need to get to the bottom of what happened and how it happened. I think one of the other things in that section I would say is the accumulation of all the different ways Trump was trying to push the system in that 10 week period was extraordinary. It wasn't just that he was coming out and lying in the public about these false claims. It was that he was pressing the state legislators in Michigan and the Secretary of State, obviously, in Arizona and in Georgia and the Justice Department's third-ranking people and, and every place he could think of to push, push, push until he found somebody or some way to hold on to power as if it was some, you know, some backwards country elsewhere in the world is extraordinary. And it's the accumulation of that that I think also really is striking. I want to play one last piece of sound because uh, it, it rhymes a little bit with American carnage. And, and you know, 
I am really hard to shock and I'm the least naive person in the world. I'm like, <laughs> I have a lot of flaws, but naivete is not one of them. But I, I will say that, and I was inured to a lot of Trump lunacy by the time we got to the election day in but November 3rd of, of 2020. But sitting up there in the middle of the night, early morning hours of November 4th, whatever, 2 a.m., 1.30 a.m., whatever it was at the White House when Trump came out and gave his non-concession speech. I mean, it still was one of those moments that was like, oh my God, I can't really fucking believe this is where we are. So I want to play it just because it does. And, and Susan, you may be at the last question here to like really put the icing on the cake and the cherry on the top, but let's listen to Donald Trump talking about the White House on early hours of November 4th, 2020. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court we want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. As far as I'm concerned, we already have one. Susan, here's my question, I guess, you know, it was still shocking to hear somebody stand up and say that. What about the votes to stop counting? We want them to stop counting the votes. I'm like, thank God for we have a federal system here because no one's going to listen to him. I remember waking up the next morning texting my wife and she was like, what's going to happen now? I'm like, everybody's still counting ballots. That's all that matters. Trump told people to stop counting ballots and they kept counting ballots in Pennsylvania. They kept counting ballots in Michigan. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to listen to this. And yet, you know, you could never on that morning have thought that this view, frankly, we did win this election, you know? the title, I believe, of Peter, your new colleague, Mike Bender's book, frankly, we did win this election, that that would become a thing that tens of millions of people believe still right now. And Trump has said that that thing he said that night, he says it every fucking day. And he's created this thing in which election denialism about 2020 has become the thing you have to bow down to and pay fealty to if you're going to get his support. He's still the most powerful person in the Republican Party. In, in Republican primaries, people are basically accepting the notion that they have to, if they were to believe it or not, they have to say it in order to get his approval, and that's the only way to win in the Republican Party. And he, if he runs in 2024 and he gets the Republican nomination, we're going to hear it again because you know it's going to be a grievance-based campaign. It's going to be as much about the past as the present or the future. So I, I guess you know my question there, Susan, is just how dangerous do you think Donald Trump is, having now covered him for the years you've covered him, written this book? I, and I mentioned this early in the podcast that a bunch of people now say that they think you know that maybe we're on the brink of civil war. Does that strike you as lunatic? These are related questions. How dangerous is he? to the future of American democracy? And do you think maybe that some of these people who are worried about civil war in America, that they might be brighter than we want to admit? Look, listen to that. Listen to it again. Listen to it again. Listen to it again. Donald Trump would literally light the U.S. Capitol on fire in order to preserve his own power. He was willing to torch American democracy and its norms in order to do so. How was he able to do that? The story of Trump is the story of what Jared Kushner once told Peter was the hostile takeover of the Republican Party. The Republican Party has, for all intents and purposes, become a cult of personality and taken over by the very self-absorbed vision of one guy. And that has 
not been diminished even in two years after Trump leaving office. And, you know, the kind of brazenness and willingness to lie and to cross boundaries that others would not cross, Democrats and Republicans, was a superpower for Donald Trump in politics. He understood from the very beginning of his time in politics, not, I think, in 2020, but going back to 2015, he understood that it didn't matter if what he said was true or not true, outrageous or not outrageous, that he would get millions of people to follow him. And he really carefully orchestrated and planned a campaign that undermined the legitimacy and integrity of the election for months before. Trying to sum up our book, what do you do when you write a book? You know this. Well, we wrote the introduction, not first, uh, last. but yeah, of course. towards yeah. the end, right? Exactly. And you know, how do you how do you pull it all together? And I was trying to go back to this horrible day of January 6th, which was shocking. And yet, for those who paid close attention, not surprising, not surprising. And there was a tweet actually by the historian Michael Beschloss, 3, 3.30 in the afternoon of January 6th, not even late in the day. And he said, this moment has been foreshadowed by every minute of this presidency. Right. And that's why we wrote The Divider. And the truth is, Donald Trump has a decent chance of becoming the Republican nominee again in 2024 and of becoming the president of the United States again in 2024. And then the kind of mayhem, chaos, and dangerous sundering of the country, you know, it will have been foreshadowed by all the moments that went before it. We are in a dangerous and uncharted moment. That seems very, very clear. Peter, I'm looking at the epilogue of the book and you say, you guys talk about your three and a half hours of interviews with him, split between two interviews. You compare this conversation, it's like a live action reenactment of his Twitter feed that he no longer has access to. He's rambling and bizarre and untruthful and strikingly vituperative. I rarely answered a question directly and said wandering off into digressive riffs, bringing the discussion back to the rigged election, jarringly incoherent and possibly contradictory rarely a noun, verb, and a specific ending to a sentence. He's trashing everybody who worked for him. He calls Bold the Degenerate, Chris Christie, Sloppy Chris, Mark Esper, wasn't meant for the job, John Kelly, not me mentally fit for the job, Mattis, world's most overrated general, McMaster, total lightweight, Millie, one of the dumbest people in the world, Sessions, not up to the job, Short, Mark Long. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. If I asked you if you ever interviewed anybody like him, how do you, in the, the, the pantheon of your career of, of people, including Vladimir Putin, who you interviewed, how do you contextualize Trump versus others who have had great power? Again, talk about things that are jarring. You know, three and a half hours with Trump, if I, the description of your interviews is, is remotely accurate, I would be like, apart from everything else that Susan just said, I'd be like, on the basis of mental stability, I'm worried about whether that guy ever gets back in power. This account does not sound like a guy who's Machiavellian and dangerous, but has it all together. He sounds like he's starting to drift off into senility. Well, look, <laughs> you're right. Nobody else is an interview quite like Trump by, by any stretch. For a reporter, for a questioner, it's actually a real challenge because, first of all, he's not a reliable fact witness, right? You cannot assume that what he is telling you is true because he says so many things that aren't true. In fact, the very first thing he told us in these interviews was a lie, or at least in contradiction to something he itself had told us in the previous interview. So it, it, it's, 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 you know, he literally at one point, we're talking about January 6th and whether he was going to go to the Capitol in the Secret Service. And we've now heard more about that from the committee hearings. Yeah. But he told us at one point, he says, yeah, the Secret Service wouldn't let me go. And then with less than 60 seconds later, he said, yeah, I never told the Secret Service. And then 60 seconds after that, he says, yeah, the Secret Service wouldn't let me go. So he switched his story right. twice within 
literally the, the turn of a clock. How do you interview somebody like that? And he, and he heads off on his own tangents, his own riffs. He rarely answers a question directly. You may want to know about his foreign policy, but he's going to take you right back to the stolen election or whatever else he wants to say. It's kind of a curious journey through a very different mindset, <laughs> right? And, uh, you a know, cur- a curious journey through a very different mindset. But I was like, these Trump <laughs> interviews are more like a profoundly traumatizing, deeply baffling foray into the most incomprehensible, utterly horrific, terrifying <laughs> mental hellscape I've ever encountered. That's how it sounds to me. Anyway, but um, I'm sorry, Peter, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just please proceed. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But having interviewed like, I think, six other presidents, they all try to stay disciplined to some extent. They're all aware of what they're saying. They recognize the power of the words that they utter because they are president of the United States. They want to be judicious in what they say and not Trump. He is, of course, the entertainer. He's the showman. He's a bombastic uh, carnival barker. He is, in fact, trying to capture your attention with the most outrageous thing he can think of. And if you haven't responded to him the way he thought you would, he's going to try to say something even more outrageous. He may not even mean it, but it doesn't matter. He's going to say it anyway. And it's just it's, it's a very different experience, obviously, than anything else. Susan, one word answer, lunatic or not, Donald Trump? This will be the, literally the last question of the, of the podcast. Donald Trump, lunatic or not? All I'll say is, of course, we have to end with psychiatry, right? I mean, it, we've all been in the head of this one guy for far too long. And in yeah. the end, that's why he's not really an American president like any other. We're supposed to have a system that's about a constitution and a rule of law. Instead, we're psychoanalyzing one guy call him crazy or not like he's not like any other president back when clinton was president i heard the story i think from mccurry mike mccurry when david marinus would come around and want to interview clinton clinton would say to mccurry go oh man i I, I like david but i I don't want to be put on the couch again for another session like that i don't want to be maybe marinus always puts me on the couch and I, I think of Trump, he's the ultimate therapy patient. He's happy to be on the couch. He wants all of us to be in his head. And we're all like, we can't stop. We just have to dive in there, even though it's just like a fucking haunted house in there. Um, you guys deserve a medal for spending as much time inside that head as you have. And the book, The Divider by Peter Baker, Susan Glasser, is available everywhere. You can buy books now and, and potentially some places you can't. It's places where you'd have to steal that book. You guys are great for taking the time and the book's fantastic. And hopefully anybody who's listened to this incredibly insightful and intelligent conversation will be like, oh, I got to buy this book. Because you do. You got to buy this book, The Divider. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. It's great. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, co-authors of the new book, The Divider, which you should all pick up right now, today, without hesitation or delay. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Howland. Grace Weinstein, co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz, our video editor. Megan Burney. Our producer and engineer, Zoya Soroy, our researcher and Marshall Eisen, the one and only, the truth, the light, the heat. He's our executive producer. 